Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks guys. Talk to you soon. Hi, this is Tom Bancroft. I'm the founder and CEO of Pencilish. It's a new animation studio. And if you want to build valuable relationships, you should be listening to Build Your Network. It's with my good friends, Travis Chappell and Eric Skorzynski. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. Tom, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. It's my pleasure. Nice to meet you, Eric. Yeah, it's it's good to meet you as well. And this is definitely one that I'm really excited for uh, because you're responsible for a lot of uh, a lot of things that I grew up with. And uh, it's <laughs> it's kind of interesting getting to, getting to sit down and, and talk with you a little bit. I want to dive heavy into your career because there's so much to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, I want to really go back to childhood. Like, let's go middle school, Tom. What were you into? Was the artistic side always there from day one? Like, tell me a little bit about those early days. Yeah. And middle school was about when I really, I think, decided I wanted to be an artist, which is saying a lot. It doesn't usually happen that early, I think, for most artists. But um, I remember drawing a drawing of a squirrel. And Mm. it was probably out of a, uh, from a photo or a coloring book or whatever. And getting to the tail, a big furry tail and having trouble. But up till then, I had gotten a crowd around me and there were some girls that were there. And that I remember that distinctly. 
because I thought this is my entry point into getting girls when mm. I was drawing. I was wrong about that, by the way. <laughs> but I do also remember second tier was then losing that crowd because I couldn't draw the tail very well. It wasn't coming out right for whatever reason. I didn't yeah. know how to do the fur. And it, so it was both this high mark and low mark that probably drove me for the rest of my life, as strangely as that sounds, because it was it started with this feeling of, oh my gosh, people are gathering around and, and this is this is working. You know, this is I'm doing something that they've never seen before or couldn't do themselves. And then got to this point where I, I then was deeply embarrassed because I couldn't finish it and make it look right. It was messing up and I was erasing yeah. a lot. And that stress of of never wanting that feeling part of it, I think has driven me to be the best artist I can be too. Yeah. Were, were you introverted as a kid? Was that kind of your way of expressing or was it, were you extroverted and you appreciate the extra attention the the art brought in? No, definitely introverted. Uh, my brother, I have a twin brother okay. and we both drew and we both have been career uh, artists, uh, both for Disney uh, for many years too. And so what, the the competition was a big element there too, mm. obviously. Um, so all through growing up, we were very competitive with our drawing and trying to impress our mom, right? We had a single mom and we would show her, you know, our drawings of Snoopy and, you know, which one's better, you know, was the big question. And she would never, you know, pick one. And of course she would, oh, they're both wonderful. I love them both <laughs> the same, you know, that kind of right. thing. And uh, like a twin mom, you know, you have to do that. And I have two twins, by the way, too. So, um, wow, yeah. So I know what that's like. But, you know, it, I just, yeah, that, that I remember too was, you know, the big push was uh, the competition between us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, it, it's really, that's really interesting perspective because I, I was always polar opposite with my brother. He was very much the rebuild computers in his room. And I was the person that was up like early in the morning with crayons and, and, and later on it became a camera. Like I was always artistic expression. He was always numbers and math. And so we never had that kind of sibling rivalry. So, and, so uh, he's the rich one. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll see. There's still time, you know, okay, we can, good, we'll good. see what happens, but uh, <laughs> that's awesome. So, so did, when did it become something where you thought this is a career opportunity? Because I know, I know for me, it was always, you know, here's some creative things I like to express, but you know, that wasn't ever career. It was like, that's my hobby. What am I going to do for work? When did you make the decision to kind of dive into this and, and make money doing what you love to do? I, I think the decision, like I said, was fairly early and partially because of that moment of that squirrel, mm -hmm. but also um, simultaneous to that, taking math classes and realizing, oh my gosh, I'm terrible at <laughs> real world, you know, functioning academics. And so those two can quickly become hand in hand with a lot of mm -hmm. artists. And, and for sure enough, for me, it was that way. I'm not going to say I'm like an idiot now. I'm just saying, you know, to say that that wasn't a driver to go, oh my gosh, I love doing this. I hate doing all these other things over here that are mm -hmm. kind of academic. And writing was always one that I did enjoy. So like creative writing classes and stuff, but that went along with the art because I soon realized my area beyond just drawing cartoons and things like that was I started diving into like high school and stuff like that, writing the gags, doing a comic strip, you know, those kind of mm -hmm. things. And then realizing, oh, wait a second, there's even a bigger world, which is film. And I loved live action films, especially like, you know, fantasy things. And I was that kid who was about 10 when Star Wars came out in 1977. Mm. And so once that came out, there's a lot of people like me out there that that was that defining moment of going, oh my gosh, I can't do that, but I want that for the rest of my mm. life. Whatever this feeling is of creating a world and telling stories, I want that. And 
fortunately, I, I funneled what I did love, which was drawing into hand-drawn animation and filmmaking, you know, in the animation side of things. And then that, you know, a little bit later went to Disney and became a career. So the moment I knew uh, that that I can make a career out of that was when I did a stop motion animated film with my brother and a a couple of friends of ours one summer with a Super 8 camera. Before that, I never knew that you could do animation because this is pre-internet, right? Yeah. And I didn't know that you could do animation without having millions of dollars and a huge staff and all that, because that you would hear a little bit about at Disney and things. You knew about Disney to some degree. Everybody did, even back then. But boy, to to just take a small little stop motion camera and and move clay around and and make it into this little film that had cuts and close ups and things like that, it that opened the world. That was just like we're making life. It's coming to life, and it looked yeah. like crap. I mean, it's horrible. <laughs> but but looking back, but uh, but that moment uh, was when I said, "Oh, okay, I can make this into a career." Yeah, it proved the concept that you can actually do it. Like, there's something there yeah. that you can do. Yeah, you kind of have to see that somehow to to really, especially when you're younger, to kind of go, "Oh, okay, this is a this is a job." Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up Star Wars because I was really curious what your influences were because a lot of the movies in your filmography, like when I watch interviews, because I love behind the scenes of different movies. That's I watch that more than movies sometimes, mm-hmm. and I I always am interested to know like what the inspiration was for the person creating iconic characters and all these things that now are cited as, oh, I grew up watching, you know, Mulan and, and, you know, they mentioned Mushu or they mentioned, uh, you know, like the John Henry short, they mentioned all these different things. Like, were there any other films that you would say were like a big influence on you as far as like your, maybe your creative style or the way you thought about, about making animations? You know, I'm, I'd say that I'm a, I'm a, um, I'm a student of, of animation and cartooning, but so many different, you know, uh, areas, like even Mm -hmm. illustration too. And so like when I was growing up, it was still very popular and you heard a lot about Norman Rockwell, like Mm. American illustration was still talked about at least, at least let's put it that way. It's not like it had completely died off. It was just the the 20, 20 years before us. So it was still like a lot of art books that were on coffee tables were Norman Rockwell. It's, you don't see it quite as much as when I was a kid. Um, and so I was very influenced by illustration and and painters, though I'd never painted and I still never really painted. I was always into drawing and cartooning for the most part when I was very young. And that became a little bit more realistic drawing, like comic books were a big influence. So I happened to live through what I would call sort of the the heyday of of comic books. That, and that was about 85, 86. And that was around my high school. Um mm. I think they say 86 was like the second golden age of comics and, and Marvel comics specifically. But before that, like in comic strips, and, and again, when I was very young, I was still influenced by illustrators. But then uh, when I was younger, like elementary school, it was the second golden age uh, of comic strips. You know, we still had Charles Schultz doing the Peanuts mm-hmm. and we had Beetle Bailey and things like that that are still out. Some of those legendary ones that have been around forever but all being done by the original creators, by the way, Dennis yeah. the Menace, Hank Ketchum was still alive. And then we also had this second tier that was popping up, which was Jim Davis making Garfield and uh, Brooke Breth- Brethard, um, you know, making uh, Outland. And then before that, Bloom County. Oh, Calvin and Hobbes, of course, was popping up right around that time. And so there was this resurgence of comic strips in the, say, 80s um, and early 90s. 
And so there was a lot. And then Mad Magazine. Mad Magazine was a mm. huge influence on a lot of artists that are my age because you had classic uh, cartooners, uh, car comic strip and comic book and artists all kind of, uh, and humorous illustration artists like Mort Drucker and Jack Davis that were contributing to that. And so I do remember Tony and I were very into Mad Mad Magazine, um, not just for the reading, of course, it was kind yeah. of juvenile, even for us, I think, but man, we love the drawing. And so, right. yeah, lots of very, uh, a lot of great influences back then. I think it was really kind of a golden age to have it from coming from all different directions. Right. You, you alluded to Charles Schultz, obviously in Peanuts, and from looking at your career from the outside, it looks like that was your first kind of venture into the professional world was working on this America, Charlie Brown. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. how you landed that gig and, um, and what kind of led you, like what relationships brought you into that world for the first time? You know, good question. So it wasn't until later when we had this internet movie database, right, mm -hmm. that popped up and now you can go and search people's credits, right? Yeah. And I, I never even knew that I got a credit on that project because I did such a mm. little amount until you did one of the set designs, right? Yeah. So I was doing like what we call character layout. And so it was really cool of them to give me a credit, but I was literally, I did that job between my freshman and my sophomore year, the summer between freshman and sophomore year at Cal arts. So mm. I was still learning animation, still a student of it. I had done a right before that, the first half of the summer, I had, was a production assistant at Ralph Bakshi Productions, and they were making Mighty Mouse, The New Adventures of Mighty Mouse that summer. And But it was a non-drawing uh, job. We were getting his cigarettes and taking out his laundry, and it was it was kind of a horrible thing. But we Glamorous were, Hollywood story. <laughs> exactly. Early, early, you know, production job at an animation studio. And, you know, making photocopies of artwork that would then go overseas. You know, we had to keep copies in case, you know, the, the art, you know, it was lost in transit, that kind of stuff. And so I uh, finished that job and I had like a month left before CalArts. And I was like, I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to call around and see if I can get a gig at, at something actually drawing, right? Because I was like dying to, to actually work on something. And sure enough, the the Lee Melendez Productions, which was the people that did all the Mickey, uh, not Mickey, <laughs> the, all the um, Charlie Brown uh, specials, all the way from to the Christmas special that's now like a traditional uh, favorite to, you know, This Is Your Life, Charlie Brown and all those. So they were doing that summer, this, this really bizarre series of little short, uh, you know, little shorts uh, for NBC or ABC or one of those. And it was called like, uh, This Is history charlie brown or something like that and it was literally the very first time that they ever showed adults um mm -hmm. in a in a charlie brown special you always saw maybe at best some legs but you usually just heard them off screen this time we had to show you know george washington crossing the the plymouth or you know whatever <laughs> whatever was that that he crossed oh the delaware the delaware yeah. <laughs> to get to plymouth rock no that was the thanksgiving episode uh, anyway so I did uh, just one of those where the kids go to space, basically, and you learn oh. about the space station and stuff like that. But what led me there, yeah, was a connection from when I was working at Ralph Bakshi and one of the sort of the artists there that I wanted to be, but wasn't, you know, I said, well, you know, is there anything else out there really? And they were like, well, yeah, you are pretty good, but we can't use you here. You know, what? why don't you give Lee Melendez a call? We heard that they're, you know, they're working on a project and need some help. And so, yeah, that literally, I mean, the animation business is very small and it was even smaller back then. 
And so it really was about, did you know somebody? And especially a guy like me, I was still a student, basically. There's no way they should have given me that opportunity. But because I was coming and they were like, oh, you know, this guy over at Bakshi, okay, you know, they would at least look at my portfolio. Right. So, So with it being a small world, did that project help you get your foot in the door or did that feel like a, it was a one-off and then you had to really get to work trying to find, like, what was the first thing where you felt like, oh, I gained traction? Like now I've kind of made a name for myself where people are willing to take me seriously. Yeah. I, I won't say that that helped me get a job, right? Both of those things, they, I learned a lot. I will say mm-hmm. that. And so that obviously indirectly helped me get into the next job probably. But but the, the connections and also, but especially the jobs themselves, they were kind of lower end TV stuff, right? And so my actual first job in the industry was working at Walt Disney Future Animation. And they kind of don't look, they look kind of down on TV production work. They don't necessarily go, oh yeah, that'll, that'll oh, you did that Charlie Brown thing? Come on down. <laughs> yeah. they, no, they're like, eh, that wasn't, you know, that's not the level we do, you know? And so I don't even think I brought it up. Maybe it was on my resume, I'm sure, but but I wasn't like exactly selling it and or showing those drawings in my portfolio, if I remember right. So I was literally at CalArts still in my sophomore year and Disney came uh, to CalArts to look for interns because they were going to open up the new Disney MGM Studios. This was uh, 1987, 88 I think it was uh, around 1988 mm. and they were going to open up the Disney MGM studios the next year in 1989. And so they needed this to get as many interns as they could that, you know, train them for about nine weeks. And then if they get the, if they worked out, they would go get shipped off to Florida to staff this new studio that they were building. That was actually going to be on tour, right. As mm. part of the, it's Hollywood studios now, um, but it was a theme park attraction also. And so that was my first foray into getting a gig with Disney and working on a, on a, you know, on Disney picks. I uh, did it from Florida. Yeah. What, what was that like making that jump? Because obviously, yeah, TV, especially during the time, whenever you read any autobiography of any director or actor, like there was such a, you know, disparaging attitude toward TV and the budgets were a lot smaller. It's not like now where you're getting the the Game of Thrones style budget for for projects. So what was it like jumping into a big pool like Disney? I mean, Disney's kind of the the mecca for you know animators. Oh, yeah. like that's kind of the dream everyone talks about. So what was it like diving into that pool? Was it competitive? Did you feel like you were drowning at first? Like what was kind of the first experience there? You know, it it was a great time to get into the industry because um, the real the wave, the second wave, I will say, of anim- the second golden age of animation hadn't quite started. And so mm. really we were in a, a low right at that moment um, when I was working just the summer before that at uh, Bakshi and, um, and then Charlie on the Charlie Brown special. There were a lot of layoffs, a lot of closings of studios. That was when the old Deke studio that did like Inspector Gadget and things like that, that had closed down and Hanna-Barbera had closed down and been around mm-hmm. forever. And so there were massive layoffs, a lot of people leaving the industry, basically older people, especially. And here I'm this young guy coming out of CalArts and going, yeah, I'm just, I'm ready to pumped. And, you know, yeah. and it was the lowest of the low at that time. And then Right that same summer, Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out. Hmm. And that really was the beginning of that and a few other elements. Secret of Nim came out. Um, and then uh, I got it to Disney right as their, my internship was during the 1988, 89. 
And it was when they were making The Little Mermaid. And so I got to wow. see that as part of my internship, see that being worked on and going, oh my gosh, this is really good. I mean, I was already a Disney geek and now I'm going, <laughs> seeing this behind the scenes and rough pencil tests of Ariel and, and seeing part of your world in, in pencil test form and going, oh, this is going to be really good. Mm. And, and, and they would, didn't even know it. Like the people walking the halls and working on it actually, because I was an intern, they wouldn't let me work on it. I was doing tests and stuff like that. But they were they were going, yeah, we we like it, but we're, you know they didn't know, they had no idea. You kind of don't always know. You you sense, okay, this one's coming along, but you don't know until it's all put together. That's kind of the magic of animation, and the depressing part too at the same time, <laughs> right? Is that you're animating along, and oftentimes you're animating like a joke, right? This is going to be a funny thing that Sebastian's going to do. He's going to fall and do this thing. And, and it's getting a laugh in storyboards. Now I'm animating. Okay, it's still kind of getting a laugh. But you don't, really don't know. You don't get the real laugh till about a year later when the <laughs> actual audience sees it, right? Right. And that's the feeling the whole time of just, we think it's good, but we don't really know until that thing comes out and the actual audience that hasn't seen any of this uh, gets the shock of their lives and, and goes, wow, The Little Mermaid is amazing, right? Right. Um, and so... That was a magical time, but I didn't know it. And so once we got the gig to be, and I say we, because my brother did too, uh, go to Florida and start that studio, it, it was great because we hadn't had the swell of, of hundreds of people, even thousands kind of entering the animation industry. We were still kind of a small group in general at all the studios. It was just a yeah. smaller you know, uh, industry. And so it was a great time to come get in. And then the swell happened just after that. So, right. you know, as soon as Little Mermaid came out, but then of course, Beauty and the Beast, it compounded until, and then Lion King was like the, the big one. Right. Yeah. I think we, I think everyone listening has probably heard of the, all of those movies, you know, like this are kind <laughs> yeah. of seminal, seminal, huge movies that kind of relaunched that. And like you said, kind of revitalized that whole animation that's what you think of when you think of Disney animation, you think of like fifties and you think of like the nineties, like that was kind of the, the yeah. new golden age of animation. I, I, I'm kind of curious, like just from a, from a business level, you mentioned like, and this is what stresses me out about animation. I, I've worked a lot with video. I know guys that do animation, but what stresses me out is how much time goes into something that might not work. Like mm -hmm. with, with shooting, especially now shooting digital, you can shoot a million different options and figure it out. Like, yeah. You have the ability to do it with animation, you know, whether you're doing it hand-drawn or digital, you're spending a lot of time keyframing things that may not work out once it's all put together. So how did you work like on these, on these big projects? How did you guys communicate in a way where, yes, you all had your own little slice of something that you were responsible for this character, this lighting setup, this, this kind of mm -hmm. location, but how did you communicate in a way where all those pieces could fit together? Because I can't imagine getting a year into a project and going like, oh, we missed something. <laughs> like we yeah. messed up. It's a really good question. And really the, the heart of the answer is storyboards. So mm -hmm. uh, that is a, a key element that, and actually Walt Disney back in the whole Mickey Mouse shorts, he created storyboards. At least that's what the internet says. And so I kind of believe it in that he definitely was very early pioneer. And so I do think he was the creator in general, his company was Disney. And so that, that, those become the key. Like if, if it's not working in storyboards, you just don't move forward. You don't go in animation because everything past storyboard phase is a lot of people. That's where you really throw, that's when you're kind of officially in production is if the storyboards are approved for that film or that sequence even, 
then it goes into like hundreds of people. You went just mm-hmm. from like 10 people storyboarding to now we got to throw in hundreds of people because now it's animation, it's cleanup, it's color, it's background painting, it's all that uh, and layout and design. So you don't really leave that phase if you're smart, right? In, in the animation uh, world until you're like, okay, it's working, right? It's mm-hmm. getting the laughs, the story is progressing. And so that's why I think one is, that's obviously one reason why animated films cost more, they take more time, yeah. is that we have so many things. And by the way, like that's the other magic and, and horror of, of animation is that nothing is accidental, right? Yeah. You don't just go, oh, I think we're going for a close-up right here, right? No, well, you gotta draw that and you gotta draw that a few different times. So iterations are already happening even in the storyboard phase. It's not just when it comes to animation that now you're reanimating something a few different ways or whatever. We've already gone through that. So a lot of things have been sort of like, well, no, that won't work. That won't work. They've already, they're crossing, you know, checking things off, you know, even in the storyboard phase and going, okay. So by the time it gets to your desk, the animator, in my case, you know, okay, they already know what they want. This is a close-up. It's it, it's this intention. It's it's either a gag or he's saying this line or wh- whoever it is. I'm thinking of Mushu at the moment. Yeah. And so he's, you know, uh, looking right at Mulan. The intention is this. It's all been, they've pretty much got it figured out. And there's like a little sliver of, of room for the animator in a lot of cases to add a little something. But it's not like, oh, I could do this a million different ways. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, the voice has been recorded at that point too. So now you already have the dialogue done. So a lot of things have been set in motion by the time it gets to my desk as an animator. So, and that's, so there's a lot more flexibility at the very beginning, the development phase, of course, and you can go a hundred different directions and all that, but they went those directions usually about a hundred of them and narrowed it down to then, you know, so that when we go into production, a lot of things have been really locked down in the storyboard phase. Were you ever frustrated by that being a creative? Were you ever like, oh, I wish that I could change how this is going to play out? Or did you, did, did you like that you had, hey, here's my assignment. I'm going to knock it out. Well, yeah, no, a little bit of both. So I would say overall, I was happy with that situation because I like to have a little bit of a box, right? Yeah. And I think most, at least commercial artists like that, right? You want to go, okay, what are my expectations? And this is really how you make money in any kind of commercial art, right? Is it got, you have to have a little bit of a box. Otherwise you're going to be making a hundred iterations and not make any money, right? Yeah. So you want whoever the director or client is to say, here's your box. This is what we're envisioning. This is what we're looking for. Maybe even here's some art that you can look at as the artists that we kind of like that you can maybe say, use as reference, you know, as a style. Um, and, and in this case, it's like, it's very much locked down of like, this is the length of the scene. He's looking at Milan and he's saying these exact words, right? So it sounds like it's a really tight box. What I love about Disney, at least, especially in the nineties was that that wasn't true. It sounded like, oh, there's a, a strict box. There's a million different ways you can have a character say something depending on the context of the line. So I could still, you know, like even down to like, where do I have him blink his eyes? At what point? Yeah. When, when he's saying something, is he is he like blink, look back, then turn to her and say the line? You know, there's, mm. there's a lot of different things and acting is, is what I'm talking about. It comes yeah. down to acting. And we became acting geeks at Disney and Pixar is the same way that the higher end feature film animators are acting geeks at their heart. And so I love that, you know, being able to, you know, be able to kind of listen to Eddie's line over and over again, this is Eddie Murphy in case of Mushu, 
listen to that line over and over again and go, wait, wait, he's saying it in a little funny way. Here's an example. Okay, so there was a line where, and it's a gag, where Milan is entering the camp for the very first time and Mushu's hiding behind her scarf, right? And he's like telling her all how to be a man, right? Oh, you got to pat him on the butt. You got to spit a lot, you know, all the stuff that really is the worst thing to tell her, right? Yeah. And, and so she just looks like an idiot walking around and, and you know, you know stiff-legged and spitting and, and smacking people on the butt. So they get up to Shang for the first time. Oh, and then, okay, so chaos happens. You know, all she sets off a chain of events with the Gang of Three and the whole camp is destroyed. And then that's right as Shang comes out of the tent he's talking to the general and it, and it's like he's now in charge and he sees this mess and he sees Mulan for the very first time. It's all her fault. And so she's like, he's like, soldier, what's your name? And she's like, she's trying to think of a name. She hasn't figured it out yet. And he's back there going, uh, Ping, Ping was my best friend growing up. Right. And, and so he's telling her all this and she's like, Ping. And, you know, he's like, well, that's this guy's name or whatever, you know? So there's this whole thing and it works up to her, her saying, uh, him going, ah, choo. Uh, or no, he says chew, and then she goes, she goes chew, and 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 Shang says ah chew, and he goes gazuntai, I kill myself, right? <laughs> and that was the that was the punchline for that whole little bit, right? <laughs> to get a little gag at the end, and I listened to that. Now the, in the storyboards, it was only like Mushu. It was two poses. It was Mushu hanging out in a close up, kind of hanging out on on the back of her scarf and going. Gesundheit, and then him back kind of holding his belly and going, I kill myself, right? Like he's laughing. And so what I did as an animator, I was like, I can do this in a fun way. Because after I listened to it a few times, the context was... Eddie, I started listening to it and I started realizing he's like, <laughs> I killed myself. He had a little warble in his voice, like uh, like he was crying. And that was the the context that he was thinking when he was saying it. And if I wasn't a better, if I wasn't astute, I would have just had him laughing and all that. But what I did was I had him grab her scarf as he comes back from saying, Kazuntai. He grabs her scarf. He starts wiping his eyes as if, it, as if he mm. was crying and says, I killed myself. And it was the one little thing that I could do as an animator that took that character and that personality of Mushu even further, still working within the box that I had. I only had the, the back of her neck and her scarf as anything within the shot that I could use. And him interacting with her scarf, but also, you know, acting like he's crying and stuff. It took it to the next level. It was already a funny gag, but now it was like, oh, he's kind of really hamming it up, right? Yeah. And uh, so that's one example of like how you can work within the box, I guess. Did you have a gag like that that you spent a lot of time on that ended up not working? That that was really, maybe it was really good by itself and you were really proud of it, but then you saw it put together and it just fell apart. Yeah, I have a few of those. And in general, we'll usually find a way to make them work. If it's, uh, usually you catch them early on. So you do like a quick rough pose test and it's still kind of stick figure-ish. You know, it's not like fully fleshed out and you did it kind of fast in like a few hours and you shoot it and you go, oh, that didn't work, you know? And so that, then scrapping it, it's less painful. You've only put a day, maybe two into it. Right. Um, not like the full week uh, to show the directors. And so, yeah, there's been many times I did that and went, I just, on paper, it sounded funny. And then looking at it, I'm just like, I can't, it's, it looks like chaos, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I definitely want to get into what you're working on now because I, I, mm-hmm. I, I'm really, I'm really curious to talk about that. But first I, I have to ask, I grew up staunch Baptist family 
and we mm-hmm. watch Veggie Tales like crazy. And yeah. uh, so, I, so I have to, I have to ask about it. For me, uh, uh-huh. I, I just got to know. But uh, what, what was really interesting to me about it is, is, and I'm fascinated by the whole big idea story, and and it's yeah. it's really interesting. But I am curious, going from Disney, like, and you're going in this golden age of animation. You're working on these massive projects, and then going to big idea after working on some of those projects, what did that feel like? Because it had to be some whiplash going from the production level of Disney, the amount of money, resources, team members going into that world. So what was that transition like? Um, and did you have more freedom? Did you enjoy the flexibility of that more? Or did you feel a lot more constricted going to a tighter budget and uh, and situation there? Right. So Everything you're asking is like a podcast unto itself, but (laughs) I'll try. It was all those things. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I went to follow my heart. I, as a Christian myself, I really felt strongly that I, it was time for me to help them create their first feature film. And I felt a calling actually to go. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, I think I had a motivation that was beyond just career building and, and ladder climbing, Right. I, I was going for a different reason. It was almost a mission to me. Yeah. And so I wasn't going to go, okay, now I'm going to be a director and I'm going to, you know what I mean? I, I would have stayed at Disney for that. I actually knew I was giving that up, um, the next hmm. step on the ladder, and that I would sort of probably take a couple steps down doing this. So that kind of side of things, the uh, entrepreneur and the ladder building and the, and the climbing, that really is a part of the story, I hate to say it. What did come from it, though, I will say the blessing there was that I did get some opportunities that I'd never gotten before. I helped to create the 2D Larry Boy animated show, Larry Boy Animated Adventures. That was one of the first Flash animated cartoons anywhere. And so, uh, and it was about the time that I think it was what Cartoon Network was doing, uh, Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends, which was the very first Flash, you know, for the, the big studios. We are we kind of predated that with mm. Larry Boy, and so there was innovation, and I got to direct that. I was the art director on that. I kind of was the show creator with Phil, and so you know that and doing those four to five videos plus storyboarding on the feature film before that, and and actually doing computer animation for the first time before that on Esther, the video Esther. That all was, you know, there were so many new things. I was going in a radically new direction almost every single day. Yeah. There was some that was repeat as far as like, oh, do some character design. Oh, and it's of a leek or, a, you know, it's vegetables and fruit and, and they have no arms and legs. So like that part of it was not challenging. It was very easy on that side, artistic side. But on the technology, on the job responsibility side, um, you know, almost everything was new. Um, and so that part of it was, and then working with a small team was something that was kind of addicting too. I, I, I had a little bit of that experience in Florida at the Disney studio there because we were a lot smaller than the California studio, but this was even smaller than that and even more lower budget. Now they were making good money at that time. So I must admit, we didn't really feel the budget so much. And and really it was already created that these were low budget. Like, you know what I mean? Like you, you, uh, you didn't expect to sort of do like, oh, we need 13 costume changes for Larry in this show, yeah. you know, or we're going to add a, you know, a, a spaceman character, you know what I mean? Like it was built in that it was, this is your cast. They're already designed. They have no arms and legs. Deal with it. That's your box that you're in. Right. And so um, it was already a very low budget show for all those reasons. It, so 
you know, I left with, you know, they ended up going bankrupt is what happened. And so after got, Jonah, right. Was Jonah was yeah, the, Jonah the was the, the first feature. And by the time we basically, the expenditures on everything, they, they shut off the videos, which um, making the videos, which was the big moneymaker to mm. make the feature film. And that was a, not a good decision um, because they just staffed up like crazy, got to almost like, you know, a small Disney size, hundreds of people. Well, it looks good. Like we just literally, yeah. well, I have a, I have a oh, did you? almost four-year-old and we just watched it with her. I mean, we've watched it several times recently and like watching it, I was like, this looks really good. Like it still holds it up. So there, there's, there's some things that are just from that period of animation. If you watch anywhere that, you know, now you see it done a lot better, but there's things like the water simulations look really good. Like there's a lot that just looks really solid. And I was like, this should have done the opposite of what it did because it, it yeah. looks as good as any of the other anime movies coming out around that time. Yeah, it, it should. I agree. And then the, the second one looked very good too. And I, I think it actually was a funner story too, yeah. which was the pirates that don't do anything. Yeah. So anyway, and I worked on both of those and then the, the Larry Boy 2D adventure. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a part of my career that not everybody asks about. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, I had to, I, I, I was, uh, I was telling my wife right before I came up, I was like, yeah, I worked on this, this. And then, uh, I was like, and then I was listing like VeggieTales and three, two, one penguins. And I was like, that was where I got the, cause that, that's what I was watching as a kid. Like I, I watched Disney, you know, I watched yeah. those movies, but I was always watching, you know, three to one penguins. I'm watching all these different, you know, big idea movies. Like that was, you know, for a, a kid grew up in a Christian family, like that was Disney for for us for oh, all intents yeah. and purposes. I know, but, and, and it, I love that too. I love hearing those stories. I have students now because I teach at the university level, and you know, they they they're a little younger than you, but still, they they were kind of on the tail end of that. Or right. their younger, uh, older brothers and sisters were definitely you. And so um, they, they were families that grew up with that. And uh, hearing that side of it too is really fun because you go to the California industry, the studios, the Disney's, the Pixar's, they don't talk about VeggieTales. They don't, <laughs> they don't want to hear about it. It's a shame. Know? Yeah, it is. And well, so there's the so much to learn. The South yeah. kind of knew that world a lot more than I think uh, California did. Yeah. There, there, there's so much to learn there and so much creativity in such small doses, like, you know, for yeah. being short episodes and, and it's just fun. They're just fun. It's cool. Like that's one of the coolest things about being a parent now is I get to show, you know, I mean, just showing yeah. movies that I grew up on is cool, you know, like showing my, th you know, almost four year old now, but you know, her talking about like Bob and Larry is kind of a cool nostalgia kick for me. And it gives oh, me an excuse sure. to rewatch <laughs> all these, uh, all these <laughs> movies from childhood. So I had to ask yeah. about it because it's, it's definitely sounds interested. In. And I was, like I said, I was fascinated. You went from Disney to big idea and then oh, yeah. kind of I mean, rode with them. That's late. the part I, I yeah. left out of the story. But yeah, I mean, I left my dream job to go there because I really yeah. felt God's calling. Yeah, that's awesome. That's the short version. <laughs> this episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers 
Agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you. That work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Well, um, I, I definitely want to talk a little bit about what you're working on now because you you talked about you know getting into that smaller team, you know, being able to have that creativity and and all that sort of thing. So, talk to me a little bit about uh, Pencilish, which is your new uh, your new company that you've started, and what led you to kind of start this first of all, and uh, what are you hoping to accomplish by bringing more voices into the into the table, basically. Yeah, I'm really excited about what I'm doing right now with Pencilish. You know, I, we're talking about the the golden age and the heyday of me, the younger half of me, and now this is the the older, experienced half of me. But and I love those days, those early days, mm-hmm. of course, at Disney and Big Idea. Have a lot of fond memories, but I'm really excited about Pencilish because I feel like I'm putting to a lot of what I learned in those earlier days. I'm kind of finally funneling. And a little bit funneling it toward other people too is to say, this isn't just about me now. Um, and so, what what we're creating is the very first fun and fun, uh, sorry, crowd invested company. And what that means is just like a Kickstarter's crowdfunding for a project, we are crowd investment for a company. And this is a, it's a regulation CF. And so the the vehicle we're using to launch this company is exciting to me. That's one phase of being able to have fans and and investors that are basically saying, we believe in this and we're going to put money into it and so that we can profit from it also down the road, hopefully, right? Just like you. But also we're going to market the heck out of it. We're going to be part of your crowd, your army, that's going to get excited about when things get released and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I love that we live in that world. That's the fun part of networking and, and social media is is having that army, of course, and that's at the root of what we're doing with Pencilish. Um, but what we are going to do is we're going to create animated IP. We're going to um, have intellectual properties that we own, because by the way, that's rare to hold yeah. on to your IP. And that's something I've learned through the years is working for the big boys and creating Mushu for Disney. I, I'm still buying the t-shirts and the dolls and the toys of Mushu because I'm, dang it, I, I designed that guy, uh, yet I have to buy it, right? Nobody's giving it to me. I'm not seeing profits from it. And, and I'm not bitter about that. I knew that going in, that I signed that a contract and I was well paid through the years and okay, great. But they're a billion dollar company for a reason, right? They mm-hmm. hold on to their IP and they exploit their IP. 
and get those characters and stories out into the world and then reiterate and reiterate. Well, that's what we want to do. But on a smaller scale, at least for now, which is we're going to create our own content stories and characters. We're doing it with a crowd behind us and we're, and we're finding the new talent too, to go along with that. Some of the ideas are mine because I've had them for years. I've been wanting to kind of make this project or this project. And we'll get into feature films down the road too, when we get bigger. I'm just starting with a what I feel like is going to be the safest and quickest return on investment, which is short form TV series. And so mm. we're creating series that are only about four minutes long each episode, but it's a, it's a series. So it's got an ongoing story and uh, we'll put out like, you know, five of them to begin with. So you can kind of get to know the characters in the story and then keep going on the ones that really are successful. Of course, go back into production for more of those. And pretty soon have a, a pencilish channel that hopefully is flush with content is, of IP uh, that we own. Is part of that kind of testing to see which of those shorts pops off to potentially be a feature film down the road? Or is it just mm-hmm. right now, just getting the animators used to work on these projects, getting, you know, just testing out a couple of things? Yeah, there there is definitely an element to testing. I mean, Disney's doing it. They're just doing it to the point where... Yeah. They've pre-tested a lot of stuff, right? They pitch it, they market to the, you know, to their crowd and, okay, wait, do you like this? Before they put in a billion dollars, right? But so by the time they're down that billion dollar road or or even hundreds of millions for their feature films, because they're probably at what, 300 million or so like that for a feature film, they've pretty much tested a lot of things along the way. There's still a huge risk, of course, which one's Mm going to be a blockbuster and which one's not. But they can at least feel like we'll probably break even at the at the worst, even at five hundred million in, because that's about what they're at when they throw in all the uh, advertising and, and marketing. They're at least at five million, five hundred million. Sorry, that's a lot. So they have to have a billion dollar take home. Yeah, right. And that's what's also broken about Hollywood is we've we've made animation so that everybody feels like it's so expensive and so time mm-hmm. you know consuming. And I don't want to do that. I want to make stuff that people can see and enjoy. And by the way, on your phone, because that's where the world's also going. It's more short form, uh, little snippets, but still have the character and the story that you want. And it's ongoing. And But nobody's really doing that, especially in animation. Right. Because they're like, well, you know, how? You can't. You know, it's no, you're yeah, not you Disney can. or you're not Pixar. Yeah, so, right. Yeah. But so with this crowdfunding that we have, with this wave of money coming in because they believe in it, we can do that, right? Mm-hmm. We have the funds. And it's lean. There's no doubt. We're doing the yeah. lean version, the small and lean version of what the Disney's are doing. And by the way, we're also going to do that thing that Disney does that I learned, which was you market it. It makes mm-hmm. sense, right? That you make a feature film, you don't just throw it out and hope it goes viral, right? right. You, you put marketing money into it. So we're saving some of that money to market it when we launch it on our uh, YouTube channel, Pencilish, so that people will see it. We're going to make sure that they know about it at least, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, you, you mentioned YouTube. I was curious about the distribution model. Is it going to be purely setting up on its own channel and monetizing that way? Or are you guys going to be trying to sell some of these projects to a Netflix or to a Disney or to these other platforms uh, early on to kind of earn back some of that money? So the answer is yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, the wonderful thing about how there's there's a long-term goal and then there's short-term, right? So short term, yeah, and I don't count on this, by the way. I'm mm-hmm. I, even though I'm the CEO of the company, I'm probably the one that least counts on like uh, ad revenue from YouTube, right? Because 
I know that that's sort of coming and going, right? Like yeah. some people are making still decent money on that. Some people aren't. We have ways to do it. I think that that we will make money and, and my marketing um, people, uh, Ash Grayson is my partner and he owns a marketing firm. So he feels strongly that, that we're going to do well at that. And that's great. I want that to be gravy. Our long-term, which is long-term, is that we're going to own IP that hopefully has millions and millions of likes and, 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 and comments and that that's what's going to be value to us. And, and I don't want to bank on that, of course. We're going to make sure people see it. But the, the idea is, is that because we own it, we can now exploit it too, right? Because the real yeah. money in animation isn't making animated cartoons. Most people don't know that. It, that's a break-even world, right? Is if you're lucky, you'll make SpongeBob for a few years and just making the SpongeBob itself in general just breaks even. Now, maybe SpongeBob is not a good example because it's been around for a long time and it's going to keep living. But anyway, it's kind of the the uh, Seinfeld of, of animation. But uh, in general, you're kind of breaking even, right? Where the real money is on the merchandising and the licensing. All the deals that you make after, once you have a popular character and storylines that people love, that's where you can really make the money. And that's where creators and investors, not investors so much with Disney, but but that's where creators lose out because yeah. by then they've already been bought out. They were bought out early on. And so they don't get to see the actual really big money. Yeah. And uh, in this case, we're going to have investors directly seeing that bigger money and also the creators too, who still co-own it with us. So we really feel like it's, there's nothing really new here. It's just, we've kind of reinvented it a little bit and said, you know what, we're not going to go in greedy. We're going to make, yeah. we're going to do partnerships with these creators and we're going to fund it. We're going to put money into it and they're going to put in some sweat too. And then we're going to make these shows and hopefully make them the very best we can and hopefully get the eyes on them. Not even hopefully we're going to, we're going to market it, put money into it so that people see them. And then hopefully they love it and we keep making it and we own it to the point where we can able to do merchandising ourselves or we do what you were saying. Maybe a Netflix comes in and goes, wow, that one's really popular. We can see that obviously. And by the way, this is already happening. Coco Mm. Melon is an example of that. If you have preschool kids that started as a YouTube show and then went to Netflix and and Cobra Kai is another version that was a YouTube show that went to Netflix and has become even bigger. So that's our goal. We know that they need content. We're going to make the content. We're not just going to come up with ideas and go, we have a bunch of ideas. Can we pitch them? No, we're going to make it. We're going to make the shows we want to make the way we want to make them. And we're going to actually then put them out there and make them popular. And then they're going to come to us. Yeah. But for, for somebody who's listening, who's wants to get in on something like this, you know, I know we've got people listen who are on the creative side and in different areas mm-hmm. who work in production. We've got people that listen who are definitely probably the majority involved in investments and things. What's the best way for them to get connected if they want to get started with this and and put some money into this these projects? Yeah, so the easiest way, and we're still building our website, unfortunately, but you can go to pencilish.com and there is a link to the WeFunder. We're on wefunder.com backslash pencilish, but the easy one to remember is just pencilish.com and then hit a link and go to WeFunder. And that's where you can get all the information. There's there's a video of me talking about what we're doing, but also you can see our advisory board. We didn't even mention that, but we have an amazing advisory board of, of Disney alumni that are um, on this. We even have Ming-Na Wen, who's like the only, uh, she's a brand new kind of a triple uh, threat in that she's a Star Wars character, a Marvel character, and a Disney princess. And so she's a voice actress, of course. 
she's on our board. And so you can read up all about all that. And, um, and even where the industry is, we have a little bit of like, okay, here's what, where the money is on licensing and things like that. And give a little bit of education about sort of what the animation industry is kind of all about. Um, and that's where they can invest too. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, as we kind of wrap up and I seriously, I mean, I, I know we say this, but I, I could talk about this all day because I'm fascinated <laughs> by all of the, I'm fascinated by the artistic creative side because seriously, I'm, huge movie nerd. I love all that. I love all the just behind the scenes studio back and forth. Like I could talk about this all day. I know we have to wrap up. I got to ask you this question. Do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why? Man, great. It, you know, I can't, I want to give you a straight answer, but it's so impossible almost to say that one is more important than the other. I, I th- just think they're so equal and hand in hand and it only gets deeper that way. I feel mm. like who you know becomes more and more important, and then, but but just equally as important, and never goes back, never goes away, is what you know, right? Yeah. So I want to say it's what you know and pick it, but I also know that there's so many people, and I know them myself, people that either left Disney um, after the 2D crash and that didn't want to get into CG, and and they had a lot of knowledge, but didn't have any connections beyond animation and really had a struggle to get into, to jump out of that industry into another industry like painting or something or other artistic sides. And, and that became a huge hurdle, but they had all this knowledge. So to say that they are separate, it's so impossible for me to say that. And we get, I've gotten jobs through posting something on Instagram. And so that's a form of who, you know, too. Is that building an army of people that I'm trying to show my work to on, you know, your followers yeah. and you never know which one of those is, you know, works at a company and they need have this need and then they reach out to you because they saw your work. And so I think today more than ever, we live in a world where being out there, knowing people, hopefully physically too, yeah. but being there digitally, especially doing the LinkedIn's and the Instagram's and all that um, is really important. Yeah. You know, you're going to send me down another rabbit hole um, with the, uh, I was going to ask you about the CG versus the 2D animation. Uh, if you, if you had any thoughts on the, uh, on the direction of that, because, well, I'll go ahead and ask it and then I'll wrap us up with the. I know where you're headed. Go ahead. But, go ahead. but Princess and the Frog was kind of supposed to be the return to that traditional 2D animation, Mary Poppins Returns, which I think you contributed to as well. Like, no, that's also, my brother. Oh, your brother worked on that. So, um, <laughs> But like that also like reintroduced some of that animation style, but it doesn't seem like it's stuck on. And I really miss that style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I like the CG. It looks really good. Like you watch like the short Piper, you know, like it's incredible how, how real that looks. But, you know, I personally like the more traditional 2D animation. Is, is that where you fall or are you excited for the kind of computer generated angle of this and seeing, seeing it just mm-hmm. get more and more photo real? Well, okay. So the nice thing I can say, and I can say this, not only being a 2D animator, still in the industry, still doing work, but also as an instructor at the university level is the sort of little Hollywood secret is that 2D is not dead. And that there is a, there are a lot of people like you out there. And I'm saying on the artistic side also that haven't given up on 2D. I have more more students coming to me saying, I want to be a 2D animator, or I want to be on the 2D side of of drawing, right? Designing characters, storyboarding, that's all on the 2D side of at least animation production. I don't want to do computer animation. And the world, 
the media is telling us, no, 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 that, that boat has sailed. It's gone. Yeah. We're all computer animation all the time. And it's really not true. So there's a wave happening. It's starting to happen right now. Klaus on Netflix mm -hmm. uh, was one of the big ones. That was a great 2D animated film at Christmas time on Netflix. Um, we have, uh, you know, Space Jam, A New Legacy. I worked on that too. That's the second Space Jam. That's going to be 2D. Um, that wave is coming. And, the, and I've turned on more 2D animation jobs than I ever have probably mm. in this last year. Most of that's because I'm doing Pencilish now. But I've had a lot of opportunities at, that I've had to pass up um, from Cuphead to Green Eggs and Ham to there's just a lot of uh, both TV, video game, and feature films that are starting to be 2D animated. Um, and there's more in the pipeline that you guys haven't heard about yet. But that's the inside thing is that really 2D is not dead. So thank you. It's you and, and people your age and people like you that still love it and don't want to give up on it and are and still requesting it that I feel like it's still around. And so, yeah, it was sad to see that happen. There was a lot of decisions and i'll say this on the disney side is that you know the uh michael eisner and uh, i think he was still there but you know he had a guy david staten that was was kind of the the, the head chopper at the time and so he was heading up the uh, animation department at the time and he didn't see the value in it and so when when pixar was doing amazing and and they said no they wouldn't let us they wouldn't get acquired by disney at the time yeah it happened later as we know but at the time they said no. And so they were just like, well, then we're going to do it. We, they, let's just throw out all the desks, all the animators, all the 2D people, lay them all off and let's start over again as a CG animation studio. They already had the groundwork, of course, yeah. but let's, let's plan that out. And from here on out, we're making CG animated films. They never told that story to the public, but that's literally what happened. And that's why I have an animation desk, a 2D animation desk right behind me from Disney is that they got rid of them all, not just the people, the equipment. They couldn't oh. go back to a 2D film if they wanted to. Wow, oh, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, look, I'll, I'll move us into work right at the end of our time. I'm going to take <laughs> yeah. three minutes. We'll wrap up with our random round. I, even though every part of me wants to ask all about Space Jam, we're going to go ahead and move forward. And, uh, and uh, first of all, what profession other than your own would you think would be fun to attempt? Oh, good question. I've always wanted to be a dig deeper on, on being a writer. I do write and I've written a couple books and they're more art instruction books, but I love creative writing and I do write outlines and stuff. I never really get to the point of writing a full script. And so I would, I would probably want to dig deeper in that. And by the way, I would also be a reader, not a reader now. I have no time to read. <laughs> and I've I really always wanted to be a reader too. Yeah. And I think to be a good writer, you have to be a good reader. So those two things. 100%. If you could sit on a park bench with anybody past or present and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? I'm going to say Charles Schultz because he was probably mm. my very first influence as a artist. He was, I fell in love with the Peanuts and Snoopy and Charlie Brown specifically. And when I was very young and would copy that yeah. all the time. And to me, I saw him when I realized who the artist was behind it, right? I saw him as sort of the epitome of like, that's what I want. He does a comic strip. He'll he'll turn out three or four, or like a week's worth of comic strips in, in two to three days. And then the rest of the time he plays golf, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I didn't want to play golf, but that, but that was a fantasy of like, you could, you could create your own characters and tell your own stories. And he would, he was the artist and the writer, right? He was the full yeah. creator of that whole product, that brand basically all by himself. 
and he didn't need anybody else and he could actually get it done fairly quickly and still vacation with his family. And even as a child, that was like, that was the epitome. He's getting yeah. paid to draw and he controls it completely. Nobody's telling him what to do. I mean, that sounded like heaven. Yeah. Yeah. No, I started with drawing, like I said, as a kid, and then I moved into video. Like that was how I got my creativity out. But I remember I used to always practice drawing Snoopy's profile. Like that was like early. Yeah. And, and I remember when I saw Charles Schultz initials in Charlie Brown's hair the first time, I was like, that's so cool. You can put your stamp of your own identity yeah. into your characters. It was, it was really neat. How do you like to learn best? You said you're not a reader. So I'm guessing not books right now. Is it mm -hmm. blogs, podcasts, videos? What's the best way to learn for you right now? Well, I'm visual, so I love videos, of course. Um, so I, I digest those quite a bit. But I love podcasts too. So I'd say it's both of those, videos and podcasts. So I can be drawing and a podcast can be on and it's not too distracting to where it's going to, you know, mess me up. And especially certain things I can draw that I'm more, you know, if I've drawn it before or whatever, I can kind of be in that zone. It's not going to distract me. But video... Uh, I'm too visual. I'll, I'll if it's a movie or or even like a tutorial, I have to be looking at it, and it'll distract no. me completely. So, I have to. I can, and I have to do both. So I have to put I put the videos off till like later after I finish my deadline, kind of thing. Gotcha. What's your morning routine? Uh, definitely coffee, two cups uh, every morning, and you know, get all ready. Uh, I'll try and work out. I have a row machine now. I'll try and work out hopefully three times a week at least. Um, and sometimes less. <laughs> um, and, and it is a little different every day, but those things are, are big important elements. Um, and then hopefully get into this office here anywhere between nine to 10, um, depending on kids stuff too. I have four, four girls, but two uh -huh. are still at home. So I gotta, you know, do, it could be some driving or it could be whatever, making a launch, who knows what it is. So sure. what's your go-to pump up song? <laughs> I'm going to throw it out. This is just the first thing that popped in my head. It's uh, Lose Yourself uh, by Eminem. Gotcha. Okay. Pretty cool. hip, right? Yeah. Super hip. Um, I can't imagine that blasting in the big idea uh, animation no. room. But, <laughs> but what's something you're not very good at? Well, math. Uh, I've kind of already said that. Time, I would say. <laughs> I'm still terrible at time. L literally, uh, both my twin brother and I, and I do think this is partially because we were twins. You share a brain. It took us a long time, and I'll say numbers in general, mm. to not only learn our, math, uh, our uh, times, tables, but uh, the calendar, the months mm. of the year, there's only 12 of them. It Literally, I was an adult when I learned wow. the months of the year because it was not a concern to me. And that's really where the root of that is that time doesn't matter to me very much. Um, mm. And so I have to really pushed myself to be on time to things. And, and that is a priority. It's become a priority through the years, of course. Yeah. And I can't be a CEO and not make time a priority. But, and I am organized now, but it took many years to develop that. So time, I think, and the grasp of time, of how long things take and all that, um, it was the second half of my life before I got good at it. Yeah. Um, I, I know my last question is, where's the best place for people to find you? Obviously, uh, pencilish.com. We'll have links to that in the in the show notes. Uh, is there anywhere else people can connect with you and kind of follow your, your journey personally? Well, yeah. Instagram, Tom Bancroft, the number one. So Tom Bancroft one on Instagram and on Twitter. I am on Facebook, but I've kind of pulled away from Facebook, so I don't check it as often. But Instagram is definitely the place. I'm even on TikTok, but I, I'm a light touch on that. Gotcha, um, gotcha. Those are the places. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Seriously, I could I could have talked for two or three hours, but I appreciate you uh, taking the time today to talk through your career, talk through what's happening soon. And I, I definitely will be keeping an eye out for all the stuff that's going to be coming out here in the near future. So thank you so much for joining me on the show. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.